Welcome back to Startups, Sparks, and Serendipity. We are back again with another single episode, but with some very exciting topics to talk about. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Hey, Max. I'm doing very, very well. We've just made a very big leap at my startup. I can't tell you what it is right now, but I'll be able to tell you. I mean, I can tell you after we stop the recording, <laughs> but uh, I can't publicize it yet. But I will be able to do so in a couple of weeks, and then we can do a deep dive into that. So generally very happy. Everything's picking up very nicely. And we've been working on this for a fairly long time. So generally uh, feeling good. What about you? Great to hear that. Yeah, likewise. I mean, we had a um, very uh, inspiring pre-conversation, pre, pre Wallace. And uh, I think that that kind of depends a bit on our moods. Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. But uh, I think today we have some interesting topics to kickstart it. Um, generally, to start with, we wanted to dig deeper into, uh, into some startup news and uh, talk a bit about what's happening in the market. Uh, are you a big wine fan to start off with? Not at all. Not at all. Sorry Why? to disappoint you, but I have probably tasted two wines in my whole life. What's wrong? Why is that? I don't know. Just never really got into wine. I drank a lot of beer, especially in college. was a huge right. beer guy. And I, I like to split eating and drinking as well. Mm. So I wouldn't, I, I, I just don't drink alcohol when I eat, which is... I think one of the biggest reasons you drink wine, right? Uh, at least often you combine it with a nice meal and then adding the wine makes it an even better experience. At least that's what I hear from my friends who drink wine. But apparently you drink wine. Yeah, I mean, like I, I lived in Stellenbosch for a while, uh, which is uh, yeah, 25 minutes away from Cape Town, South Africa. And it's a big wine region where um, where yeah, wine is definitely celebrated in different ways. And it, it, it just gives um, a very interesting view into of course the south african culture but generally wine has definitely attracted me since then a bit more i'm not a like a big wine drinker like some people in the startup environment that more or less taste wines and do different things on a daily basis it's more something that i do for fun but generally since we're talking about news it's quite interesting because vivino which probably every wine drinker knows uh, it's like a wine marketplace or wine recommendation app Uh, where you can literally quite easily um, take a picture of any wine that you're drinking or any wine that you're interested in and it automatically gives a recommendation based on the community of how good the wine is how it tastes like um, how, how it smells like and all the different ca characteristics of of a wine which makes it quite nice and they've been there since i think 2010 um, but they just raised a big big series d um, 155 million to expand their um, efforts going into different markets and i thought we we talk a little bit about it because it's it's not a, the usual round and especially i would be curious since you're not a wine drinker also you from coming from an external perspective a wine marketplace a wine recommendation uh app raises 155 million what do you think i mean that's isn't it a quite impressive <laughs> first of all i i had never heard of them and very often when i hear like at least big funding news i've at least heard of the startup but never heard of that one and but it's it's Like it's very impressive on the one hand, and then also it makes a lot of sense, right? Because wine, like the wine industry, is really, really big, and I know that a lot of people are not only drinking wine for pleasure but see it as a hobby, mm. like like a very legit hobby to 
either collect wines or find the best wines, etc. So yeah, I think it's it's pretty cool. And I would love to hear more about the industry because I don't know the industry that well. I just know it from some of my friends who either work in the industry or are just like very big wine hobbyists, but I don't know too much. So maybe you tell me a bit more and then I can try to talk about it from an outsider perspective. Yeah, sure. I mean, like generally, um, I think what's interesting about the online market is that as soon as you type in wine marketplace or you just type wine in your app store, you probably don't find a lot of alternatives to Vivino, which makes it quite interesting. Uh, I've looked into different kind of alternatives, different options, and there are certain competitors that try to reach their market and that find kind of that have different value propositions in order to to get different users and and make their way into the wine industry. But generally, I think from an app or a generally like a marketplace perspective, there's nothing, not not really going like not a lot of stuff going on. What I also looked at, um, I know that for example, Gary Vaynerchuk last year or two years ago, they launched like a direct to consumer wine brand where they work directly with the farmers. Uh, in Napa Valley, I think, and they sold every wine directly through an e-commerce store from the farmer to the end consumer, and they just sold it to a big uh, consumer brand. And you see that like in the wine market itself, where everything has been very traditional, um, more or less there, you have the wine farmers who sell their wine to distributors and they give it away to potentially second party distributors and they sell it to the end user. The industry itself is more or less now being changed by direct to consumer uh, trends, but also through um, influencer oriented wines where influencers work together with farmers um, or with uh, the distillery or not the distilleries with the farmers more or less and, and, and they produce wine and they sell it directly to their community, their fans or whatever. So you see a lot of things happening, as you mentioned, that different people come into the wine industry that were not really part of the industry, uh, let's say even five years ago. And I think that's an, an interesting trend. And also looking at the, the growth numbers of Vivino, um, in 2018, they had 20, 29 million users to now 50 million users. So you see within like two years, they have more or less all, like almost doubled uh, their size of users, which is incredible in my opinion. Or what do you think? What, what are they, like how are they actually making money? Are they selling the wine? Like it, is it a marketplace where I can buy it? Like I know marketplaces very well, right? Right, right. So right. like what's the concept behind it? Yeah, that's the interesting part. I mean, the, the I, I, I found the, a quote from the founder on TechCrunch and he said that, um, like generally the idea when they launched was that they're going to build the marketplace where the vision was that, that the community drives the adoption and the community drives um, the whole uh, the, the whole emergence of the, the wines itself. They upload the wines, they give them give the wines recommendations, they, uh, they have like this peer-to-peer -peer community approach. Um, but the end goal, of course, was always to sell the wine directly through the platform. So, so they get... Um, so they get a fee as soon as they, they more less, um, sell a wine through the platform, through partners. And this has been there since the beginning of, uh, of, of the start of the platform. And just the interesting part is the founder himself, he said that it's been very, very difficult to build much because they haven't really changed their business model from day one. It was always about a community-driven marketplace where at the end the users can buy wine directly through the platform itself or through the app and this hasn't changed at all so it was quite difficult for them apparently to find new functionalities that add to the user experience itself but they're making money basically to answer your question through people buying wine through the platform so apparently 
they reached uh, a quarter of a billion sales uh, last year in 17 countries. And that's now where they have the gap because they haven't really expanded to new countries and new markets, which is something they want to do now as a next step with 105 to 55 million, which of course now gives a completely new perspective of what the growth of the, 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 the company could look like in the next years. Does it help a bit? Yes. First of all, it's insane. And I think most startup founders are very jealous of the fact that they didn't know what functionality to add <laughs> to make yeah. it even better for the customers because right. literally that's what most, not most, but like what a lot of focus is on in the early like days and even, even beyond, right? You always look at, uh, usually you have a very big gap between the features the customers actually request and that add value and the features yeah. you have and you need mm -hmm. to figure out how to bridge the gap. So yeah, that's, that's actually interesting. Yeah, and 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 and, and I, to just to add to that, right? I mean, yeah. I I know that when I looked at the first app, probably like six, seven, eight years ago, my dad had it on his phone. I looked at it, and it's like it looks very, very similar. Of course, they have some modern UX uh, improvements, but generally, it looks very similar. Functionalities haven't changed, and they it's just increasing and decreasing. That's pretty cool. I mean, it's it's also how a marketplace works, right? Because mm -hmm. if you have supply and demand and you reach network effects, then it doesn't really matter how the website looks. That's it's why, yeah, it's why Craigslist has still not died, right? Because hmm. it still has users that are offering services or products. And on the other side, people who are actually looking at Craigslist. I mean, obviously it has decreased a lot in value, but it's not, they are not alive because their UI is pretty. Hmm. And there are very, very, very many other examples. So yeah, if like once you've reached a certain point, it it doesn't have to be like new features every single month. It mm. can just be making sure that the core feature works reliably and the, that you always have the best supply and relevant demand. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's not about adding more features, right? It's about adding on the existing experience. And apparently they have done a great job at it. Interestingly though, and I would be curious to hear your feedback um, from a technology perspective, they they mentioned that they have around, which is crazy, uh, 1.5 billion pictures of wine bottles um, or wine labels right now. Um, and it, yeah, the, the, the challenge that they have now is to more or less structure the, <laughs> the 1.5 billion pictures of wine labels and make sufficient use of it in different cases. And I could imagine, they didn't talk about it specifically, but I could imagine they could build additional products that don't that are not directly related to the marketplace itself, just based on these pictures, because it's just a unique set of data that they can sell further to uh, wine retailers, to big consumer brands and say, hey, if you are thinking about making the next wine label uh, or producing the next design for wine label, we can give you a set of data and you can literally build the perfect design based on the highest recommendations of certain wine bottles in our marketplace. And they can like completely um, can add new business models and new products to their ecosystem, which I found very interesting. I wonder whether you have seen something similar, especially you as an expert on network effects, where the data points were then reused again within big marketplaces for additional products, additional use cases to be sold um, in any ways. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of examples. And then you have to differentiate on the one end between data and network effects, which just means that the more data you have, the more defensible it becomes. And then also, once you've reached a, th a certain point, your 
additional data just increases the value of the other data just because you you can cross reference it you have a better you have better input data and output data depending on what data it is mm -hmm. so that that's one part and we can talk about that in more detail at some point um, to explain it in a bit more detail and then also yeah reusing data for other purposes i think a lot of companies are actually working like that not necessarily a marketplace but that's how many of the brokerage accounts or like mobile brokers work mm. so some of them make some money through consumers buying stocks but they are also selling the information in the back end to institutional investors anonymously and, through like the the categorizations for example yeah. like age demographics etc or yeah or sometimes just to tell them hey there's a lot of consumer demand in this specific area got it uh, maybe you should act Got it. Uh, okay, like well, maybe as a last point on the on the YNAP, two points actually. One, you are probably a very well-respected person, like extremely well-respected person in some social circles, if you are the literal founder of Vivino. I bet you, <laughs> you are invited to a lot of nice dinners yeah. and parties from some very famous people, uh, I assume. Not necessarily, because if they if the, the famous people have great wines and your app tells them that the wine is shitty, then that's going to be an issue if you invite. I mean, them. <laughs> yes, but I mean, technically, <laughs> there are probably worse industries to be in if you want to get social capital in this specific niche. Agreed. Right? Because like a lot of like wine drinkers are not necessarily the uh, different to phrase it, but like mo most of the people who drink wine especially who really like in higher circles you drink more wine than in lower circles is what i wanted to say mm -hmm. so uh, yeah social capital definitely there and then uh, last question because i don't know where they're actually based like what's where they're from wow that's a good question i think they are based in the us but that's a very good question um because creandum has let their a round apparently yeah headquarters san francisco um okay And the founder, for everybody who wants to check out, is Heini, which is his first name. Very nice. Um, Saki Ranzen. I don't know where he's from. It sounds like he's not from the US, but hmm, maybe I would need to check it out. Yeah, so he studied. Yeah, he's apparently from Denmark. He, he, did, it, he did his bachelor degree in Denmark. Like he was yeah, CEO from a couple of... He actually also, also has apparently like a... YouTube channel. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, very interesting. Guy. We learn more things every single day. Okay. Yeah. But if he's from Denmark, it makes a lot of sense that Creandum has invested, right? It's also Nordics. Right. So yeah. Uh, I found an article for you that I will send you where you can read up about. Let's switch from wines to other things on the news list. We wanted to talk uh, about Spotify and a patent. I think you told me about it. Yeah, um, I think that we can do that very shortly. But generally, Spotify was granted a, a patent uh, originally filed actually in 2018 for a technology that analyzes listeners' voice and background noise. Um, and what they want to do with it, they want to more or less use that to suggest content based on people's mood or people's gender, age, accent, or sometimes even social setting. Um, and that's very interesting, of course, because we are... Um, Yeah, we are passionate audio people. And I, of course, also my background is a bit in voice assistants and they apparently are currently working on a voice assistant, which is very interesting. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts a bit because uh, of course, Spotify is known for the whole audio part and uh, very consumer focused, um, very technology driven um, uh, 
uh, way of kind of, of of playing music and giving people access to to music and podcast, but using all that data from listening to people's voices and accents and background noises is for me a big chance for them, big opportunity, but also a big risk for their brand. What do you think about that? Especially like you looking from the US perspective on, of course, a lot of things now happening in the US with security, app security, and, and all the different problems, privacy problems that WhatsApp has and all these things happening in the US currently. Yeah, I think privacy is one of the first things I can think of because apps listening to your voice and analyzing it and then also trying to assess your mood is probably not something that privacy experts or advocates would really champion. <laughs> so that's the first part. But then also on the other side, being able to recommend music based on your current mood and actually matching it is probably one of the holy grails mm. in music distribution, right? One thing that they have figured out to some degree is recommending you artists based on other artists you like. Yeah. At least for me, I sometimes discover really cool bands or musicians that I wouldn't have found otherwise. Hmm. And if they can do something on a similar level based on my current mood, just on a theoretical level, that, that would be very, very valuable, right? But then in detail, I don't know if I want this kind of input data to improve my music <laughs> recommendations in a given situation. I think that wouldn't necessarily like if you look at value and costs i think in this specific instance even though like i'm i sometimes am protective of my data and privacy and sometimes i'm especially for someone who is from germany i'm less of a privacy advocate in hmm. some areas but in this specific instance i would probably be on the side of hell no don't analyze what i and other people in my background are using just to recommend me some music At least that's how I think about it right now. Yeah. I do you think like I would be interested just as a final question from my side that I agree with you, right? I'm 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 definitely on your side. I think, however, that there's this famous sentence, um uh, privacy and data privacy is a concern until it it actually gives you lots of benefits from a user side, then you more or less give up on the privacy. I'm not not the biggest fan of the sentence, but generally yeah, the sentence makes sense, right? That's that's what I try to imply. If if right. the value would be insanely high. Yeah. I don't know. For example, medical data is a great example. If I can give a company a lot of data about myself, like my DNA and my blood type, not blood type, like my like couple of blood tests and the results for that, and then they can specifically diagnose how I can improve my overall health. Mm. And like, obviously, there need to be some restrictions. They can't like resell the data or something. But this is data I'm willing to give someone in return for them to analyze it and then give me some kind of product back mm -hmm. if it's technically feasible uh, in this right. specific instance, right? That's something where I say, yeah, fuck, that sounds, uh, that sounds great. And now, by the way, our podcast has to be marked as explicit because of the swear. <laughs> and I, I tried to avoid it earlier when I said, hell no. And I don't even know, it's probably not explicit. We need, not, to, we need to cut it out or... Yeah, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out. Let, let's, not, let's not cut it out. Uh. <laughs> So, no, but I, but what, one question that I have based on what you just said is, I mean, I, I see your point that, it, that if there's a, a user experience improvement, yes, then, then there's a benefit. But do you think Spotify compared to uh, other, other providers in the space, such as Apple Music or other ones, 
So do you think Spotify has an advantage because it's European based and European founded in that regard and because it doesn't it didn't really have any kind of big privacy concerns in the past compared to for example Facebook? Even I think it's Apple Apple is probably one of the companies that people trust the most in terms of privacy because mm. they've been championing it at least of the big tech companies, right? They've been championing it for a couple like for for a very long time actually. Uh, so I, I think in the direct comparison between Apple and Spotify, many consumers would probably choose Apple rather than mm. Spotify. But I honestly don't know, and it probably depends on the specifics. Right. I, I think it could, it just could create a backlash, to, like potentially if the feature was just automatically activated or whatever. But yeah, I mean that's the problem with data. Like data can often be very helpful, but sometimes you just don't want to share the data. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Which is makes it difficult, but nice. I think uh, we can put the thing in the show notes if people are interested in that. Um, I know that you also have a couple of interesting news to share. Uh, yeah, I will insight. actually. Uh, I'll make a semi uh, semi good transition from data to social media. And one thing that I noticed, and that many other people have noticed as well, but. The frequency with which social media platforms are specifically censoring stuff, or at least the frequency with which it's reported that social media companies are either supposed to censor stuff or are actually censoring stuff has definitely increased in the last couple of years. I mean, a lot of the backlash started with Cambridge Analytica and the data that they used to supposedly, in quotation marks, influence the US election in 2016, where like what people post and how the data would be used was getting a lot of spotlight. Hmm. And then in addition to that, the whole fake news debate over the last couple of years was also fueling this. But I can I can give you a couple of examples of news items that were reported in the last two days, I think. So I'll, I'll just read them. So one, uh, Facebook says that it will protect posts that criticize Myanmar's military and its coup and will remove content that praises or supports the coup. So basically for everyone who doesn't know, there was a military coup in Myanmar where the military basically seized control over the government. And if you want more details, just Google it. Uh, not a politics podcast here. <laughs> but So basically, okay, so Facebook has decided to protect posts that criticize the military but we'll remove content that praises or supports the coup. In this specific instance, if a military is doing a coup, right, that first of all sounds like a reasonable stance, right? But then there's always the question, okay, why does how does Facebook decide what mm. they protect and what they don't protect? And then the next, uh, the next one is actually uh, related. So India wants Twitter to comply with its order to block content related to a pharma protest and not assume the role of a court and justify non-compliance. So basically India or like the, the like government there or some government body told Twitter to block a specific kind of content and tell them to comply with it. So apparently governments think or want social media companies to block specific content, right? And theoretically, if the military has seized control in Myanmar, right? then they would currently hold the power to tell a social media company what to censor or what to leave publicly available. 
or just cut access to the service, which is actually what India has done for some Chinese apps some time ago. I think we talked about that briefly. So that's, that's the second thing. And then the, the last uh, item that was was always reported in the last couple of days, just to just to point out the problem is uh, TikTok will prompt users to seek credible information if they try to share videos flagged as misleading and disincentivize creators from uploading such content. And I think there's a very, very important debate going on and it has been going on for a couple of years, but it has mostly been going on in niche conversations, right? We, hmm. we have talked about a couple of years ago, but now this has reached the mainstream where there is a really big question or a couple of questions actually, but the higher level question is what content should social media companies leave on the platform? What should they censor? And when should they add additional information? And if you think about it just with specific examples, for example, COVID-19 misinformation. Let's use mm. that example first. There were people who were spreading, and there are still people who are spreading misinformation about COVID, which leads supposedly or arguably actually to more death and to more people catching COVID, right? Mm -hmm. So there is definitely things that are untrue that are being posted on social media. On the other hand, there have been things that were posted on social media in the early days of COVID by fairly reputable institutions that were actually wrong. For mm. example, the World Health Organization and other health experts for the first couple of months of COVID actually said that wearing masks doesn't necessarily help, <laughs> which in hindsight apparently was very wrong. And science changes over time and the truth can change, right? So I, I've talked a lot, but I think it's important to understand the context no, of this, great. right? So when does a social media company, be, is it, when, do, when can it be in the position to actually decide what's true or not? It's very, very, very difficult, right? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, uh, there are so many, so many layers to it, right? Uh, on the one hand, like, does like a does a social media network need to be politically involved in in any direction or does it need to have a seat in political discussions such as uh people that are part of the parliament or whatever does is does there need to always be like a like a representative of a of a big social media company to understand uh, the behind the scenes and everything that's going on in, in politics and use that as additional information to make decisions. I think that's kind of one layer, political involvement. The other layer, of course, is also um, kind of thinking, com coming from first principles, what, I mean, what does a social media company do? At the end, it sells in engagement and, and reach. And uh, I know there are there were some specific cases in Germany where they were definitely a very extreme right-wing parties or in, uh, respectively people, very right-wing people that used um, very specific content on, for example, YouTube to drive engagement. And because they had very high engagement because people, a lot of people were commenting uh, positively, but also negatively, of course, people were also hating against these people, in a, in, in, which, is, which is great. But generally, um, because there was a lot of engagement, a lot of reach, YouTube itself, Google actually promoted that content specifically on their platform, which of course is also something to th to think about. How does engagement and and reach contradict with um, more or less um, 
political responsibility, especially if you know that certain videos will be addressed to young people. Um, and I think these are kind of the, that's the difficulty about social media, uh, about the industry itself, because you always have the, the clash between higher reach, higher engagement and um, political responsibility. Um, and that's something that I think is very, very difficult for these companies to manage. And I, I wouldn't have a perfect answer at this point in time. And it's such a difficult question, right? Because there is no right or wrong answer. You mm. don't want to leave every single post open. I, I'm not. I, I'm very much a free speech absolutist. To, like not absolutist, but I'm very, very close to someone who says speech should not be censored, yep. because I think that usually that can be. Like censoring speech is one of the major ways of how bad regimes, authoritarian regimes hold power sure. or mm -hmm. just suppress the, the civilization, like, right? So on the one hand, I think truth should be able to be coming out. And sometimes you disagree on what truth is. So mm -hmm. the conversation needs to happen. But then there are definitely posts that need to be removed. Like if you actually call for very specific violence, right, against a certain person or something like that, mm. that that's something that should definitely be removed. But then it's not about only like violence, because sometimes things can be indirectly very, very bad for society, like misinformation about health. So one example that's often cited in the literature is the whole vaccination and like anti-vaccine community mm -hmm. because it, it's fairly big on YouTube as well and on other social media platforms where people are actively spreading misinformation about vaccines. Right. I think at least most people who are either aware of what the science actually says or who read about what the science actually says know that vaccines are one of the best things that have happened to humanity in terms of a health perspective, but there are people who see very differently, right? But would you censor people that are spreading misinformation in quotation marks about vaccines? Mm. Because if you, if you start doing that, then where is the actual line? Like where, where do you stop? And sometimes the, like one of the major problems that I have with that is that new ideas that replace old ideas in science are by definition at first always they always appear wrong at first right at some mm. point we thought that everything in the universe revolved around the earth which was wrong you you were called a heretic when you when you said well like it's it's not the earth right mm -hmm. it's it's the sun actually at least in our <laughs> in our proximity so mm. new ideas need to replace old ideas and for that things that are apparently true need to be able to be called into question mm. so There are some things that are very, very obviously wrong and some things that are very, very obviously right, but there's a lot of gray area in between. And now we talk about this for way longer than I thought we would, no, but I think great. it's, it's just a, a very important point. Maybe we actually talk with a privacy expert at some point about this. Yeah. This is a very, very interesting conversation. And I think nuance is extremely important in this conversation. Yeah, I agree. Right. I mean, coming back to what I mean, you mentioned why free of speech, like, like free speech actually exists. And of course, um, you already mentioned the reasons, but I think one dimension kind of adding to what you just said is that um, maybe it's just an observation that I have, but like different people have also uh, commented on that, that the younger the generation becomes, um, 
the less it seems that they actually want to go into thoughtful disagreements um, where people actually have different opinions. Uh, because at the end, when you look at, and of course, there's like always like a, there's a middle, but at the end, when you look at social media um, from like a high level perspective, there are also a lot of extremes coming from different perspectives, different, different sides together. And the chance of thoughtful disagreement seems to be a bit lower than it has been 30, 40 years ago, where different publishers publish an article on major newspapers or publishers, and it was more or less out there in the world. And people bought the newspaper that they wanted to, to, to buy based on their interests and based on the, the interests that they have. Um, and now, because social media is so easy and on demand to access, more or less, and, and there's not really... Um, there's not really a middle point anymore. It's, there are a lot of extremes. It's quite difficult for young people, I think, to understand what's now true, what's wrong, how should I position myself, um, and how do I understand what kind of things are wrong and which things are right? Because at the end, Facebook and Instagram are the new financial times of, of the past. And I think that makes it a bit difficult where the financial times has maybe the 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 willingness to be quite correct in what they do, no matter, I'm not sure of the details or but generally maybe publishers had had a more neutral perspective of things they're writing about versus what you can see now in uh, social media applications where you can go in a lot of different directions. And as you mentioned, you can jump into a wrong group on um, Facebook, WhatsApp, whatever, and you are part of an anti-vaccine group and you don't really understand what's going on as a 14-year-old kid. Yeah, I think it's it's extremely complex, right? So my, my, the last thing I just want to add is that also mainstream media and like all the big media outlets have their own problems, right? Because they are often incentivized to support the already existing infrastructure because it is actually helping them to some degree. Hmm. So have, giving people voices through other channels and democratizing information exchange or at least giving everyone the possibility to reach people is very very helpful but as with many many things or with almost everything in the world there's always downsides to every benefit so maybe maybe a topic we can revisit another day uh, yeah. let me let me switch to two other quick things one one very quick thing that we can talk about in a bit more detail at some point uh, once there's more news that uh, countries are apparently or like many, many countries are apparently currently cooperating on designing a global tax for tech companies. So as you know, there was this whole debate of tech companies not paying their fair share, specifically US tech companies in Europe, because they were basically doing a lot of money, like making a lot of revenue here, but weren't really taxed here because of some tax loopholes. Hmm. So what the... What some countries started to do is they don't tax profits because and they started taxing revenue, which has definitely its own problems depending on how you structure it, right? You, I, I wouldn't support a tax that starts taxing digital content revenue for small companies. Mm. I think it would be very, very restrictive and would actually be bad for innovation and growth. I think if you start with only the biggest tech companies, there might be... Uh, an argument for it. And then the Trump administration basically blocked the whole conversations for the last couple of years. And the Biden administration signaled some kind of interest into finding a solution. So now apparently the search for a solution is uh, progressing. 
And apparently, like in the next couple of months, we can expect some development around that. Interesting. Yeah, let's let's observe it. I mean, uh, it's been there for for quite some time, so I'm looking forward to uh, some to some suggestions. I mean, they are hiring so many people in Europe, and it's becoming more and more. I know that. Uh, I heard that that some major tech CEOs are coming into coming to Europe now, especially after the challenges in the U.S. in the last years. Um, so let's see if Europe is going to be uh, is going to get bigger um, with with U.S. companies taking a spot here or expanding their existing uh, infrastructures and employee bases. So if that's going to happen, then maybe that makes sense, especially for the bigger ones. But let's let's observe it. Yeah, I think a global tax could be very helpful in just making sure that tech companies are also paying, in quotation marks, some amount of money in the markets that they're actually reaping rewards from. Mm. I think the, the general idea behind that is fairly good. And then some tech CEOs, even of the big tech companies like Zuckerberg, for example, has also signaled that if there is a unified solution, that would actually be something that you might support, which also makes it much easier to just like have one specific framework and not 100 yeah. different frameworks, right? I agree. Okay, next uh, big point that I would love to dive deeper in at some point in the future is that big tech, tech companies are continuing to go into the car space. Mm. And there are two very different approaches uh, that were reported in the last couple of days. One, Apple apparently plans a multi-billion dollar investment in Kia and they aim to start making cars in Georgia and in a couple of years. So it doesn't start next year. So don't get uh, at least uh, at least a target of like 100k cars a year was for 2024, I think. So apparently Apple wants to join the car game. Uh, I think we talked about that uh, outside of the podcast at some point that big tech will at some point go into the car game. And there are two different approaches of how you can do it. You can actually work on the hardware and try to, I don't know, build an Apple car or whatever. Or you can do what the second report also said. And there's not much detail on this, right? But Apple has been rumored to go, to, not only rumored, it was very clear that Apple was looking at the space, or has been looking at it for quite some time. And we're trying out a couple of different things. And then uh, there's also another one. That Ford says that millions of its vehicles will run on Android starting mm. in 2023. So Google or Alphabet or whatever you whatever you want to use is apparently moving strong into that direction as well. I mean, we knew that Google was interested in mobility and cars because Vemu is basically a very public reflection on that, right? But apparently this specific Android play would be about the software of the cars and making sure that Google Cloud can provide connected vehicle services. So since this market is so like freaking huge, that's actually very interesting. And then also it, it's change, it, it might change how some of these big tech companies think about interacting with the real world, right? Because most of the money that at least Google makes is only being made in the digital world mm. by search ads. Apple has built hardware forever, basically. So for them, it's a bit different. But specifically for Google, I mean, they had some experiments here and there. But building more stuff that actually powers like bigger hardware 
that's mm. actually a fairly interesting development. And you can they, they can go into a lot of directions, right? Maybe just spitting out ideas. Maybe at some point, even like big cargo ships have operating systems, mm. or I don't know, airplanes or trains need operating systems, like at least more com complicated operating systems, right? So yeah, lots of opportunity to grow. I think here it will be very interesting to continue to look at that market. Yeah, I agree. I mean, especially I mean, you mentioned you mentioned Apple and uh, Apple going into the market. I know that Apple. I read different articles about it. They are partnering with a couple of companies. Uh, I, I think they also talked to Hyundai about uh, using their electric batteries. But they also talking to, or they actually just hired a Porsche executive called Manfred Harrer. Um, who was actually responsible, I think, for the new uh, Taycan, the new e, the new sports kind of electronic car, and, and they hired him. Uh, so that's, I think, you see a lot of trends where people, uh, where especially Apple invests into um, into executives that that should build up the the product line. So I think that's something that we should talk about. Maybe we invite some people, but um, I think that's interesting to observe. Let's uh, let's wrap it up. I actually have. Um, One book recommendation, it's called Factfulness um, for everyone that hasn't read it. I think if you want to get a fact-based worldview about the things that are happening in the world, in society, in business, but generally also um, when it comes to understanding how the globalization works. And Haven't we talked about that before? Either that or we just talked about that book so many times because it's really good. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it could be. But I think I, I just finished it. So I'm, I'm not sure that uh, I, I talked about I, it I before. I think you probably just told me about you reading it and then we haven't right, discussed it. Right, right, right. I know I just finished it and I was very impressed with it. And uh, since we talked about fake news and everything happening on that side, I think Factfulness is a great read um, for my side. I don't know if you have anything to add. Uh, it's a great book. So I would like to add that. I think it should definitely be... A high priority on the reading list for everyone who wants to understand how the world actually works and mm. using data to actually understand it because often it's very unintuitive at least for me and probably for most other people who have read it so yeah very good recommendation i no i think one one last thing in general is that we continue to have our one-on-one -on -one conversations that we really enjoy and then that we also have regular guests uh, that we continue to interview mostly from the startup scene but sometimes also Uh, from some other areas. And I would like to close it off with a quote, as always. But before I do that, I would like to hear from you if you have any last words for the day or any other recommendations, any tools that you might have used, anything like that. Uh, no, actually. I, one thing that I've been kind of looking at, I, I didn't use it yet, um, or more or less my my team also mentioned that we, we don't want to use it at this point in time because we have too many channels already. But Yak, uh, it's a cool voice startup that is trying to use voice messages um, and, and live transcription for for faster communication and a good alternative to Slack. So if you, if you get bored by all the Slack messages that you need to write in remote times, such as I do, I think voice and Yak, uh, Y-A-C, could be a great alternative. Uh, great founders uh, the product has been there for a while they just raised money from slack so um, good company and i think a good alternative i like it yeah I, i i was just thinking about where did i hear about it where did i hear about it and i saw the pitch deck from them because they apparently built it through pitch.com and pitch, pitch .com, yeah. they were heavily promoting it yeah, so I saw that. that's I saw that. that's where that's why i saw the name and yeah it's, it, it looks very interesting it looks very very interesting Uh, okay, so I'll give you a bit of a longer quote this time. Go ahead. And it's 
from Morgan Housel, who currently is an investor, but who has also uh, written a book. And I'll just read it. He said, an engineer can have a successful career knowing nothing other than engineering. Same for a chemist, meteorologist, or radiologist. Business and investing don't work like that. They're a little math, a little accounting, a little sociology, a little psychology, a few parts marketing, law, politics, game theory, history, statistics, biology, and public relations. That doesn't make them harder than other fields, just more uncertain, prone to chance, and with fewer experts. And I thought that was a very, very good quote. And it's actually a good preparation for what we will discuss in one of our next episodes, where we talk about specialists versus generalists, which is a topic that you had suggested so many times. And I'm very happy that we we actually tried to do it today, but we kind of talk too much as we do many times. So I think it's a very good quote to just give you a brief glimpse into our discussion in our next episode. Very good transition, Mike. Yeah, uh, let's go. We're gonna do, we're gonna cover it. And uh, very nice quote. I haven't heard it before, so thanks for sharing. And uh, have a great rest of the evening. I will have a productive one. I hope you have one too. Bye bye. Cheers.